This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Martin Amos, who died of cancer on May 19, 2023, at the age of 73, was a leading English novelist, essayist, memoirist, and screenwriter, known for such novels as London Fields, Money, Time's Arrow, The Information, and The Zone of Interest. His memoir experience won the Booker Prize, and his essay collection, The War Against Cliché, is now considered a classic. The son of novelist and essayist Kingsley Amos, Martin Amos was close friends with Christopher Hitchens, Saul Bellow, and Philip Larkin, all of whom he wrote about in his final memoir disguised as a novel, Inside Story, in 2020. I had the great fortune to interview Martin Amos five times over a span of 23 years, the first time recorded in the KPFA studios on November 26, 1991, while he was on tour for his novel London Fields, turned out to be a wide-ranging discussion, including his own history as a writer, along with his views of the first Iraq War, which had ended the previous February, and his relationship with genre fiction. This interview has not been heard in over a quarter century and was digitized in May 2023. You have been compared to Saul Bellow, Norman Mailer, Dickens, Nabokov. Uh, what Dick Lupoff and I judge, though, is that you re- reminded us a lot of J.G. Ballard. Does that strike you as strange? Not at all, no. He was, um, he was a strong influence, particularly early on. The four novels about the drowned world, the wind from nowhere, the crystal world, the drought. And his short stories, his hardcore SF stories, I'm a great fan of. Now, your father is Kingsley Amos, along with writing a number of novels, also wrote a book called New Maps of Hell, which is kind of a long essay about science fiction, co-edited a number of science fiction anthologies. Is your background, your reading background, science fiction as well? Yeah, I reviewed science fiction um, for many years for The Observer in London. Actually, that was much less fun than than just following your nose, because then you had a you had a stack of mostly talentless stuff every month to do. The great thing about science fiction, I don't know which way you lean, but I'm I'm against fantasy and for I think science fiction is a realistic genre. It's got to be tight, you know. It's got to work out. There's a certain kind of precision the way a society. You know, if it's a futuristic society, it starts with details that will eventually cohere and all that. I think it's a good good discipline, science fiction. London Fields is a novel about the millennium, a sort of science fiction book, in that it takes place, I guess, the year 1999, the year 2000. Did you feel you needed to extrapolate it all? Um, yes. I mean, the first temptation is to, is to take the present and just uh, do it more extreme by a decade's worth kind of thing. But you can be made to look a chump doing it that way. I mean, things don't usually progress in a linear fashion, and there are all sorts of loops. Um, For instance, so you look back into the past and take something from that, and I created a kind of Dickens-like street life. Also little details that uh, amuse me, like in the future, 
1999, bell bottoms are back. You know, that's one of the really bits of really bad news about the future. Um, but the millennium, I think, isn't just the future. It's a, a kind of crisis point. So much, so many themes of our lives come together under the heading of the millennium. This and this millennium, so unlike any other. The idea you have of uh, the crisis uh, includes uh, in a quote of Earth's new tilt, which you do mention in the book. But now we have uh, 1991, the war in the Persian Gulf, which led to oil spills, fires, huge clouds, uh, fallout from Chernobyl still happening, the rainforests are being decimated, the cities are falling apart. So it, it is a kind of end of the world now. Yeah, it was a permanent end of the world. I mean, that was always the idea, actually, that the millennium was a permanent millennium. It was uh, the end of the world was due every day. That was the, the kind of medieval notion of it. What we, what we have in front of us in 1999, 2000, is uh, tremendously traditional religious anxiety and neurosis and disorientation that's absolutely traditional it has happened at the end of every century and happened in spades at the end of every century that has you know the 1500 or the year 1000 but our century being so unlike any other we have you know whereas the yodeling mystic walking down the street in 1499 saying the end of the world is nigh that was all very well, but the end of the world was staying right where it was. But now, you know, the end of the world isn't here, but the end of the world is constantly visible. And, you know, every every inhabitant of the planet has some notion about the end of the world as a as an actual matter. Uh, we no longer think of Mother Earth as having infinite youth or indeed, you know, um, infinite life. So the, the end of the world ends not with a bang, but kind of with a total general entropy or something. Yeah, and well, the bang or the whimper. I mean, the whimper is always the more likely. Of course, it's not the end of the world. I mean, that's that's us. That we sentimentalize the planet when we say, you know, on our bumper stickers, look after M Mother Earth. Mother Earth will be fine. Mother Earth's been through much hotter periods than this, and it this vast self-regulating mechanism will roll on through many more billennia. But uh, we may not be around to, to record that fact. It's us that we've got to look after because we're making our own, you know, we're yeah. toiletizing our own environment. Well, some might say that the end of the world actually means the end of our world. Mm -hmm. For example, um, Ballard would be saying something similar to that, as would Burgess's books mm -hmm. as well, and yours. Do you see yourself as fitting into a, a particularly English literary tradition? I've always felt the North Atlantic tug. And, you know, while I think that English writing is very healthy, I and healthier now, much healthier now than it was 10 years ago, I still feel an affinity with American writers. I like... I mean, I, I like for there to be a lot happening on the page and lots of risks taken and the whole society looked at, not just a section of it, in a well-mannered 200-page novel with a nice color scheme and uh, 
pleasant decor. Well, what American authors would you fit well, into Well, the, the two greats, in my view, are um, both Russian-American authors of different kinds, like Sorbello and Vladimir Nabokov, who stand as kind of twin peaks in my literary landscape. The heavily plotted novel these days seems to be on the horizon, uh, seems to be in the fore. Um, most novels that come out, whether they be big or small, seem to rely very much on plot and character and not so much on the mini-essay contained within the novel. Uh, example of that sort beside you would be someone like, say, Thomas Pynchon's Vineland, which mm -hmm. is where the digressions almost make up the novel itself. Do you think that there's a future for that type of work, for your type of novel? The heavily plotted. Well, your novel is not that heavily plotted. No, I wouldn't say so. No, that's no. what I mean. It's the opposite of that. It's well, it's, yes, I'm not, I wouldn't say it's an essayistic either. I know, I think the novel in the last 20 years, around about the end of the 70s, the autobiographical novel seemed to reach its apogee, and there wasn't much further you could go with that. Um, now it seems to be splintering off in time and space, um, consorting with genre fiction in a in a quite you know healthy mongrel kind of way. I mean, the only thing that worries me really is this has always been on a steady decline. I mean, the Greeks began, Homer began by writing about gods. Then the Romans came along and would lower the tone by having the odd demigod in there. You know, one who. Only one parent was divine. Then, of course, it was kings and queens, then generals, then great lovers, and so on. And then it was social realism in the 19th century, and now the 20th century, an ironic age, where you don't look, uh, you don't write about us, you write about them, you know, who are beneath. And having created myself in this novel pretty well the worst character yet, you know. Keith Talent. Keith Talent. Uh, psychopaths and serial murderers excluded the most worthless character I could possibly come up with. Uh, of course, a much-loved figure uh, by all readers of the book. I do sort of think I can't go any further than that. You know, the cockroach novel, the rat novel, where do we go from here? Well, I wonder if you wrote a novel about Marmaduke growing up, the uh, horrible child of this book. Yes, well, Marmaduke, perhaps. But I do think... That literature, like you know, like everything else, like our our other kinds of consciousnesses, will have to turn around at some point. And maybe you know, I sometimes have this mawkish fantasy of you know, if a great wave of social environmental responsibility enveloped the planet, that that the novel would burst through into a sort of kind of new heroic age where the guitar strumming, uh, you know, chubby hero and heroine, who of course wouldn't be sexually very differentiated because you don't want, you know, overpopulation would obviously be the enemy. So, so the sexless, guitar-strumming, nut-eating couple might wander out into a new heroic age of fiction. Sounds boring. Yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's very boring because we're so hooked on bad news, you know. I'd like to go back a little bit over your life. How, how did you start writing? Did you always want to be a writer? I was one of the silent majority when I was an adolescent. I just got on with being a child. And I think it's during adolescence that, um, that these things happen. I was 
aware that my um, father was a writer, but I wasn't aware what kind of writer he was. He could have been writing westerns or romances or screwing and shopping novels for all I knew. And then it wasn't until I was about 18 that I discovered he was a mainstream writer and wrote about life as we all know it, and that's sort of what I wanted to do too. And really what happens when you decide to be a writer, I mean, we all decide to be writers, we all write, and some of us go on with it and some of us don't. But uh, what you what you do then is take a step outside, part of you steps outside your life and becomes an observer of it. And there's a, there's a cost to that, you know, a tab is presented, but you detach part of your mind from the life you move through and be- become a sampler, an observer, a peeper. A dilettante of sorts, I guess. Well, no, actually it's life that you, you're a dilettante at uh, because you're never really 100% involved with that. It's writing you're serious about. Well, you have a quote saying that American novelists, if they're not Jewish, are alcoholics. Um, I mean, could that be a reason why writers drink. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Gore Vidal said that um, there's a lot to be said for being an alcoholic in America because it means you're drunk all the time. <laughs> uh, but, you know, either they leave the country or they're Jewish and being drunk is just a sort of stupid, goyish uh, kind of aberration. Or they, I think it's more to do actually with um, the kind of attention they get. In England, and certainly until very recently, the rewards, the attention were so negligible that uh, you could live quite a decent life um, without feeling you were exceptional and wonderful. And you weren't chased by women. You didn't have a lot of money. You know, there weren't many distractions. You went on being a schoolmaster. You wrote your novels in your spare time. Did you have any idea that your father then was... You had no idea your father was... um a well-known writer, then. Oh, sure, but I didn't know what of, you know. You uh, never bothered reading his stuff? Not until I was about 17 or 18. Uh, you mean you didn't even know he did these science fiction anthologies? or? Um, I knew a bit about that, but I think perhaps he steered me away from them. There's a good story about J.G. Ballard in that uh, he told me that he, he hated the idea of his children reading his books because it was too intimate, and he didn't want them to know that much about him. And then his daughter, B. Ballard, was going up to university and hitched a ride with a, a lecturer at the university. And he said, who are you? And she said, B. Ballard. And he said, are you any relation to J.G. Ballard? And she said, yes, he's my father. And the guy said, I'm writing a thesis on J.G. Ballard. I can't believe this. Uh, and you're, you're his daughter? And she said, yes. And she said, he said, I don't believe you. Name me one book that he's written. And she said, um, and she, you know, hour and a half she couldn't convince him that she was his daughter so maybe my father you know insulated me from his stuff and let me discover it certainly at my own speed now he's a a famous tory yeah and uh your politics are somewhat different from that How, how did that work well actually he's much i mean when he gets out of hand i say you know you're the one who was a member of the communist party uh when he when he thinks i'm because I have left slightly left of center views, he thinks I'm in the pay of you know the Lubyanka 
I tell him that he's the actual chump who is a, a member of the conservative uh, of the Communist Party. But he changed as many many people of his generation did. It's partly to do with you know having been having come from fairly poor background. You make some money. You become a respected member of society. You get older and. And suddenly you feel that opinion has gone too far and you rather like being in opposition to bien pensant opinion. So you become a curmudgeon of the right, having been a curmudgeon of the left. Um, for me, I've just gone on this way and expect to go on that way. Do you think that, that the lack of, of going too far in one extreme keeps you more toward the center all along? Um, I don't think I had, I don't think, I think he was rebelling against his parents and I wasn't, didn't have to do that. But I, it seems to me he thinks it's a more emotional and ideological matter than me, than I do. I think it just makes sense, the position I have, makes sense to me. It sort of follows my nature. I don't really see how, I don't see the attraction of the other views. Well, now, what about um, the war in the Persian Gulf? How did the people in England perceive it? How did you perceive it? Rather sickened, I think, thinking, here we go again, really. I don't think it... I, while such protest as there was was more vociferous over here, I think the, the, um, there was not, no yellow banners and stars and stripes kind of feeling in England, um, just how can we... Let's get it over with and get out. I mean, I, I feel a kind of responsibility because I believe that it was sort of Margaret Thatcher's war and that she she gave Bush that talking to out in Aspen and sort of whipped him into it. She gave him this, you know, be a man kind of talk. And he went home and dreamt of Churchill and Charlemagne. And she'd put some lead in his pencil. And the next thing we know, we have a war you know, whose repercussions are probably going to partly shaped my children's lives as well as my own. On page 366 of London Fields, uh, Dick Lupoff found an interesting quote uh, which, in which you write, For some time now I have thought it possible to believe that America was going insane in her own way and why not? Countries go insane like people go insane and all over the world countries reclined on couches or sat in darkened rooms chewing dihydrocoding and to mazapam or lay in boiling baths or twisted in straitjackets or stood there banging their heads against the padded walls. Some had been insane all their lives and some had gone insane and then gotten better again and then gone insane again. America. America had had her neuroses before, like when she tried giving up drink, like when she started finding enemies within, like when she thought she could rule the world, but she had always gotten better again. But now she was going insane and that was the necessary condition. Do you think that that ties in with, with what, with the war, or do you think the war was just a question of Bush um, getting his uh, his gonads pulled or something? <laughs> well, that that's leading up to something much more apocalyptic. That's the war that will end all wars. Um, but no, I think that this would have to come under the under the heading of a, a little twitch of neurosis, a sort of maybe a psychotic break as the as the shrinks say, a sudden rush of blood, you know. If, you know, to go on with this idea, which is a good idea, of looking at countries as if they were people, you have to say that, you know, the stinging reverse of Vietnam still needs to be 
exercised, expunged. Chomsky, Noam Chomsky had a curious idea. He said that he thought that America actually won the war in Vietnam because in the long run it got exactly what it needed and exactly what it wanted, which is curious. That, there may be a lot in that, but the trouble is that this is a perception-first society, and the perception was of helicopters twirling off the deck of the aircraft carrier ignominiously into the sea, um, and a lot of spaced-out guys coming back and being, you know, coming back to revulsion. And one of the few good things that Reagan ever said was that he was going to try and turn that around and in the wrong way, of course, but, but try and make the vets loved again because that's what they seem to have forfeited. So, no, I mean, it doesn't matter what actually happened f from the point of view of the American people. What matters is the perception, and the perception was of disgrace. Well, why then do you, would you feel, I mean, given uh, America's neuroses or, or uh, the way America would respond to a disgraceful incident that you feel like you relate far better here than you do to your own Britain. Well, I, I, I was talking then about the literary culture. Um, well, doesn't it transfer at all into the people? Well, it, it does and it doesn't. I mean, there's a, there's a great chunk of America, which is all the bit between the coasts, where you, know, you shudder to think what the, uh, what the average man believes and uh, thinks and wants. I don't fool myself that I speak for them or that they speak for me. They're not my readers. Who do you think are your readers? Christ knows. Um, I imagine they're the, the same people they are in England, the same people you imagine, you know, your ideal reader as you write, which is kind of you when you were younger. Were you when you were looking through the library and trying out writers like you're trying on neckties and suddenly you know this is this is the fantasy suddenly you find that you hear a voice in a book and you think aha you know this is someone i'll have to read all of you know i think people looking looking for a voice they recognize and one that amuses them and instructs them would your readers read pynchon would they read gore vidal would they read umberto echo Pynchon, maybe, of those three. Corvidal's essays. Umberto Eco. No, he's, he's a bit too... Quite a good division between writers is those who write about life and those who write about books. You know, all good writing is a bit about books, but, but the, the ratio can slip too much that way. And Eco's pretty pretty for me. Um, now, London Fields actually does have some writing about books. There are four main characters... One is a lower-class heel called Keith Talent. Another is an upper-class man, Guy Clinch. Third is a uh, woman, a beautiful 34-year-old woman who is, um, I guess you'd call her a liar because she lies mm -hmm. all the time, named Nicola Six. Yeah. <laughs> and the fourth is our hero, our pro well, protagonist of sorts. He's writing the book, and he's an American author who is dying of something or other, radiation. Radiogenic illness. Yeah, his his father worked on the nuclear program in England. Yeah. And he is a writer who is trying to sell a novel about the other three. Mm -hmm. There's a bit of a bit of writing about the books right there. Well, commenting that's, back. I would call that a different wing. I'd call that playful postmodernism uh, rather than 
rather than writing about books. That's writing about writing. And again, he he's a sort of the amusing idea there is that he's a he's a Jewish writer who can't write novels because he can't make anything up. So he starts, as it were, plagiarizing real life. And I thought it was a good way of flipping the 20th century novel on its head because the 20th century novel is largely the American Jewish novel, Jewish American novel. So to have a, a failed Jewish American writer writing a long novel about sordid goings on that are really happening around the corner in in a seedy area of London, I thought, you know, had its appeal. But writing about writing postmodernism, reminding the reader that that this is not actually happening, that this is an illusion, doesn't interest me at all. And I, I'm as irritated as everyone else when I come across it in novels. But I, there it is in my books. And I keep noticing when I finished a book that there's more of it in there. And I think when this happens, when a lot of writers start doing this, it isn't because they're jumping on a bandwagon or anything of that kind. It's because the novel is going through some kind of evolution uh, in their hands. Could it also be that um, they've become voyeurs of the world and their world is closing in and becoming the world of writing? And they're still talking about themselves? I think it's definitely to do with with reality being mediated. I mean, the, the reality we experience is is mediated at several levels. And we saw in the Gulf War what happens when not only... You know, it's mediated by definition because we see it on the media. But it's um, it's managed in that what we see is what they want us to see and that it's it's sort of supermanaged. This was the first supermanaged war in that the whole thing was tailored to perception. Um, the, the whole, like the huge disinf disinformation campaign about the strength of Saddam's army, which would then justify bombing the hell out of them for months, you know, to keep casualties down. So it's it's a kind of distrust of distrust of illusion, perhaps that you know you don't want to tell a story, or you'll tell the story, but you 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 feel the need to tell the reader, don't mistake me. This is a story. This this is an illusion. It's not really happening. The characters of Keith and Guy are also two sides of a very British coin. It seems the lower versus the upper class. One thing you do have is that it's the lower class man who is the intelligent one and the upper class one who is the naive fool. Guy, the other class one, is actually meant to be a you know, pretty good guy and uh, and also rather attractive ways of thought, manners of thought. I mean, an artist, artistic ways of thought. The thing about Keith is just he's, he's horribly attuned. You know, he's adapted. He's He's the animal that has made the necessary adjustments to flourish in that society in a Darwinian sense. You know. Is this just the novel or is this something that you're saying about the difference in, of classes, perhaps? Well, class is uh, you know, unbelievably tenacious factor in, in English life. And Thatcher has done, actually, the only sort of good thing she's done is to weaken the hold of class because she filled her cabinet with people, you know, who would be the the old Conservative Party would have laughed in the faces of the the Normans and Cecils with their thousand dollar wristwatches. You know, they wouldn't have got a look in. She no, she her instinct is to go is to back the money, so follow the money and not the class. But 
as I say in the book, you know, even a nuclear holocaust would have only a glancing effect on the class system in England, and that people would still be wondering how to the proper way to eat a roach in society. You know, do you take the back legs off first? Do you elevate the pinky while removing the head? You know, it's always going to be there. Don't ask me why. Well, now, Nicola is something else. Um, I got the impression that she's almost American in her approach, though uh, I'm not sure if that's really right to say that, is it? I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't say she was American in her approach. I'd say she was, uh, in her own phrase, come to the, got to the end of men. You know, she, um, the pathetically limited repertoire of men, uh, their the ease with which they can be manipulated, how you can just press these buttons and men will behave in a certain way. I felt she was absolutely the controlling intelligence in the book. Um, she's a woman who's shaping her own... She's looking for a murderer. She is a murderee, as she sees it. But she's not in the... She's not interested in a, you know, the quote-unquote senseless slaying. She wants a death that is packed with meaning and form. You know, she does it. She goes at it as an artist might. You know, I felt she was more in control of the novel than I was often. Now, some have complained that the book is um, kind of misogynist, but it would seem from what you're saying that it's actually feminist. Yeah, I think so. I mean, my wife says that let's not screw around with attitudes and all that. Just look, see who's got the cash and see who's got the power. And uh, in my books, the women have, well, I don't know about the cash, but they always have the power. I mean, I just don't worry about that because a politicized woman reader is going to be alarmed by my stuff. There's just nothing to be done about that because it does, it sets off all these alarm bells of, you know, rape and words like rape, masturbation, that kind of thing, walks coming up. But uh, I know from the letters I get from my women readers that it's, there's nothing to worry about. Christopher Hitchens says that Martin Amos is to hand jobs what Hemingway is to bullfights. <laughs> what do you think of that? <laughs> uh, bulls. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, well uh, it got both a question and answer. Okay. When did he say that? He said it in, in one of the pieces that was actually handed out with your book. Well, that's a bit of a private joke. Um, it has to be admitted that he's my best friend. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let's not, let's okay. not pry any deeper into that. Uh, your first novel, Rachel Papers, was turned into a movie, which I recently saw, and I noticed something, which is that the actor who portrayed the main character looks remarkably like you probably did at that age at the age of 18 or something. Was mm -hmm. this autobiographical novel and... It was pretty... It was certainly my most autobiographical novel, yeah. I mean, that's what you start off with. If you start writing young, all you've got is a consciousness. Uh, later, it'll become a society. Later, it'll become a country. Then maybe compare countries. Then maybe a whole planet. But all you've got is this one mind. And you... I mean, you do as you always do. You take a bit of it and imagine that was all there was, and you intensify and exaggerate the worst aspects of it. But uh, I must admit, yes, when I saw the film, I sort of my heart ached for him uh, as for a previous self. Uh, you had a book called Dead Babies, which uh, they tried to change the name on, but mm -hmm. they didn't. 
No, I just one paperback edition changed the name. Mm. So. How how did they respond to the name? I mean, it doesn't sound like a particularly commercial vi- commercially viable title. No, sort of. It's a bit too sort of obviously sicko kind of title. Well, they didn't like it, uh, and you can see why. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I I sort of wish I'd call it something else now. Um, I've got lots of good titles that would have done instead. But it seemed right for the book, and you have to go with that. And especially if it's, Nabokov said there are two kinds of titles. There's one that you you finish a book and then call it something. And there's another kind of title which is there all along and sort of breathing through the novel. And it was definitely that kind of title. And so I went with it. Now, you have a book called Money, uh, which has a character in it named John Self, which is... Um it's been called the quintessential novel of Reagan, the kind of Reagan years. Do you feel that era is over? Well, who would have guessed when you know I went on the road with Reagan and when he was just after the nomination, just hunting the nomination, so in what, 79 or something. Who would have thought that this handsome bartender would, uh, would spawn an era? You know? The presidency was terrifying enough, an era. Anyway, um, yeah, I mean, Thatcher and I mean, recent American and English history have gone very much in parallel in that, you know, 10 years to the baddies, and then then the coattail artists follow on from that, both rather more moderate, rather less ideological than their predecessors, but uh, there's not going to be any big change for a while. I think it, it does go on. What would happen if John Self met Keith Talent? A fight. <laughs> they would not get along. Well, they might get along, but things would get out of hand, and one of them would say something horrible, and there'd be a fight. Uh, How would Self relate to Nicola? He'd probably stick his hand off her skirt and say, come on, darling, you know you love it. <laughs> And uh, I guess how how would self relate to Marmaduke? He would throw him away. <laughs> I think he'd uh, leave the house as quickly as possible, knowing he'd been outclassed. What is Martin Amos going to be doing next after London Fields? He's done it actually. I mean, I finished it two weeks ago, and that's okay. why, as you see, I'm in such a sort of buoyant mood. I finished a short novel called Time's Arrow, which I sort of hesitate to try and summarize as well. It's a uh, you you might actually call it science fiction, but it's the life of a Nazi doctor, an Auschwitz doctor, done backwards in time, i.e. in a backwards physical universe, starting with his appearance as an old man in North America and ending with his him as a three-year-old in Germany. Almost sounds like Vonnegut. Sort of. It's like that bit in, in Slaughterhouse-Five when Billy Pilgrim yeah. watches the war film and comes unstuck in time. And actually, other writers, um, White. Damon Knight has got a story called Backward of Time. T.H. White in uh, Once and Future King. Yeah. Uh, Singer has a story. Scott Fitzgerald has a story that's kind of like it. I don't think anyone's done the physical universe, you know, so that eating is a reverse process. You gulp up these substances onto a plate and then sculpt them into shape, then decook them, then take them to the store where you're paid at once for your trouble, but then you have the drag of going down the shelves, putting everything back in its place. So a uh, movie unwinding the wrong way. Exactly, exactly. So, And 
sexual affairs are very interesting done backwards. They're not that different from how they are done forwards, except that you always get lucky on the first date. <laughs> There's um, a book, a science fiction novel called Hyperion by Dan Simmons. I don't know if you know no, it. And in that, one character is going backwards uh, and another is going forwards. And the first time he meets her is going to be the last time that she meets him. Nice. I like that. Yeah. Uh, it must have been murder to write. Well, it's within the context of a much larger novel, but yeah, it's a it's an interesting concept. Yeah, and it, it, it turns things upside down. Well, it, it turns Auschwitz upside down in that he's had a miserable time until he gets to Auschwitz because the backwards world is a miserable and ridiculous one. But then you do Auschwitz backwards, and you dream down a race from the heavens, put its hair back on, put gold in its teeth, fatten it up, reunite it with its family send the family back to the ghettos, deconcentrate the ghettos, return them to their hamlets, villages, townships, repeal the racial laws, and then the Jews return to German society and make the contribution they made. After that, what? After that, a light-hearted novel about um, literary rivalry and middle age. Which you're sort of entering? Sort of into, yeah. Uh, it's a bad scene, I can tell you. Many of us here are entering that same era, have entered it. London Fields, the title comes from where? It's a real place in the east end of London um, that I used to pass on the way to the, the printers when I worked on the New Statesman magazine years ago. Uh, and I would look up for my bun and coffee and see this rainy sign that said London Fields, and I always thought it was affecting little paradox. London Fields. But in the book, it refers also to fields of observation, field, magnetic fields, fields of attraction, those fields where we lure and wreck each other. You've been listening to an interview with the late Martin Amos, who died at the age of 73 on May 19, 2023. It was recorded on November 26, 1991, while he was on tour for the paperback release of his novel, London Fields. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. 